of Hebrews chapter 2. We'll look this morning at verses 10 to 18, which is kind of a continuation of what we looked at last week, but we'll, uh, so some things may sound a little familiar because we'll touch on them again. You know, some truths are so fantastic that people just have trouble believing that they could possibly be true. If you go back a lot of years, the, the people used to believe that the world is flat like a table built on some nice, good, firm foundation. The notion that the earth might be a ball seemingly hung on nothing out in space was just too fantastic to believe for a lot of people. It took a long time. Well, this morning we encounter the truth of the gospel, truth that's even more fantastic than the earth being hung in space. And not surprisingly, many people have either rejected this truth entirely or twisted and distorted it to make it nothing out of the ordinary. But this gospel still stands, and it is still a fantastic truth. Let me read the text, verses 10 to 18. Hebrews chapter 2. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is a little bit of a difficult text to just work straight down through uh, uh, verse by verse and line by line. So you're going to see me kind of gathering truths into a couple of piles and, and talking about it. I hope that uh, that makes sense to you. <coughs> In this passage, there are two parts of this fantastic gospel truth. So two points. The first is this. In Jesus, God became our brother. In Jesus, God became our brother. You know, in our day of aggressive marketing and over-the-top political rhetoric, one often wishes people would just tone it down and choose their words more carefully. And that might be your response to that statement I just made. In this first point, I know I have chosen uncomfortable words. I could have said, in fact, I almost did, Jesus became our brother. And that's true. But even an atheist would agree to that. 
Or I could have said the Son of God became the Son of Man. And that's also true. It's a biblical statement. And it retains a certain respectful detachment between the holy, unapproachable God and sinful man. But the point that our text is making is nothing less than this outrageous, mind-boggling, sensitivity-disturbing, theologically stunning truth that in Jesus, God became our brother. Here's a truth unparalleled in human attempts to devise some reasonable religion. That the infinite, transcendent, holy God took on human flesh and blood, became a human in the midst of the wickedness of this wretched world, thus becoming our brother. Now first take note that it was indeed God who became the man, Jesus. We know from the rest of the Bible that this one eternal God exists in three persons, Father and Son and Holy Spirit. We do not understand how there can be ultimate oneness and ultimate threeness in the same God, but that's what the Bible teaches. And so we certainly want to make clear that it's God the Son, not God the Father, not God the Holy Spirit. It's God the Son who became man in the person of Jesus. But God the Son is still God. The very first verse of this book of Hebrews made that point. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And our text seems to indicate that same truth concerning the Son who became Jesus. In verse 11, he's called the one who makes men holy. Can that be anybody but God himself? Throughout the text, he's clearly someone who's greater than humanity, someone who existed before the beginning and became man. And according to verse 16, he's not an angel, nor even sent to help angels. This is the eternal word, the second person of the Godhead, of whom we read in John, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. It's God who became man in Jesus. Secondly, note that the Son actually entered into human flesh as our brother. This may be incomprehensible to our minds, but the text makes that clear. Verse 11, he's said to have become of the same family with us. The human family, I suspect. In verse 12 and 13, he's referred to as our brother in those Old Testament quotes. And look at verse 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. We read the same thing in verse 17. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way. And this is not an isolated claim. This is also the clear declaration of the Gospel of John. After declaring the Word to be God, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. All this is familiar to us because this is the Christmas account. This is the Christmas story. God the Son entered the womb of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit to be born a human baby. God incarnate, God in human flesh. Still God, very God, but at the same time man, very man. The Creator became one of his creatures. 
We sing this every Christmas in words straight from the Nicene Creed. God of God, light of light, lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. Very God, begotten, not created. Oh, come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. In Jesus, God became our brother. Oh, but he didn't just take human flesh. Note here that as our brother, Jesus entered into our suffering. He's God. He took human flesh, but specifically he entered into our suffering and death. In the very early history of the church, a false teaching arose called docetism. The Apostle John was fighting against it already in his lifetime. The docetists would not accept the idea that God actually became a man who suffered. That just seemed too much for their Greek kind of views, that matter was evil and spirit was good. So they spoke of Christ putting on a body or appearing as a body, but departing from that body prior to any suffering. But here in God's Word, we see quite a different thing. Jesus not only became our brother by becoming flesh and blood like us, he did so specifically in order to enter into our suffering and death. Do you see that theme woven through these verses? Verse 10 specifically speaks of him learning suffering. Jesus didn't need to learn in one sense. He was always perfect in his character, but he was being made ready, perfectly, completely equipped to do his work, not just by being born in human flesh, but by suffering like humans do. Again, to verse 17, he was made like his brothers in every way, that is, in suffering. And in verse 18, he himself suffered when he was tempted. (laughs) The eternal God was born as a human being named Jesus in order that he might enter into our suffering and death. Perhaps the difficulty and objections raised by the docetists can impress upon us how fantastic Though true, this truth really is. It is utterly mind-boggling that Jesus became our brother. Oh, but this was not just an exercise in trying to understand his creature's plight, like some politician might spend a night on the street with homeless people to see what it's like. No, Jesus entered into our deepest woe in order to bring us out of it, in order to save us and bring about God's restoration. According to our text, that was the purpose of Jesus' suffering. In verse 12, he's the author, or in some translations, he's the pioneer of our salvation. In other words, he's the one who originates the way of salvation. And then verse 12 is really interesting. It quotes from Psalm 22, verse 22. It's especially noteworthy. Psalm 22 is a psalm of David. It was written a thousand years before Jesus was born about. But it predicted the experience of the Messiah. The psalm begins with words now familiar to us as the words of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the psalm goes on to predict in some details the anguish Jesus would suffer on the cross. A company of evildoers encircles me. 
They pierce my hands and feet. They cast lots for my garments. So you see, when, when the writer of Hebrews uses Psalm 22 here in Hebrews 2 to talk about Christ's suffering, he's not taking that out of context. That's the point of Psalm 22. So in Psalm 22, verse 22, that's quoted here, begins a section of rejoicing because the Messiah stands to proclaim the glories of the Father in the midst of the congregation to those he calls his brothers. Here in the Old Testament is a, very, is a barely veiled promise that the Messiah would become our brother, he would suffer on the cross, and he would return in victory to the family for whom he won it. In Jesus, God became our brother. I know most of you have heard all of this many times before in one way or another. But I want you to see the wisdom and grace of God that brought about such a plan. Most every religion in the world sets up some standard of behavior and then presents a a set of rules by which you can keep that standard, promising some blessedness or some favor to those who keep the rules. But consider the grace of God. God made himself nothing and took on human flesh. He experienced temptation, suffering, and sorrow because of his identification with us. And by obeying the Father all the way to dying on the cross, he acted in our place as our representative to create a new people, those joined to him as his brothers. And so what really matters now? Only one thing. Are we connected to Jesus? That's all that matters. Are we his disciples? Are we part of the new creation of those in Christ? Have we been adopted into the family of God by his Holy Spirit? We receive such a status not by our efforts at self-reform or law-keeping, but by trusting Jesus, trusting that he died and rose from the dead on our behalf, trusting uh, uh, him and turning away from every other Savior, turning away from all of our favorite sins and every other hope, and resting in the promise that he gives to forgive and to give eternal life to those who trust him. There's no greater news in the world than this. Jesus became our brother. The God-man Jesus became our brother. So why? What's God's end game in all of this? Well, that's our second point. Through Jesus, God is bringing us into his glory. Through Jesus, God is bringing us into his glory. In our world of celebrities, sports and entertainment and even public office, there are always people around wanting to share in a moment of their glory. And the celebrities sometimes condescend to acknowledge their fans in some little way. But too often the cost of that 
picture that you got taken with a celebrity or that little moment of recognition. Too often the cost is scorn or even abject humiliation by those celebrities whom people idolize. But folks, God's condescension to become man was no photo op gimmick, no put down at our expense. No patronizing thing. He not only humbled himself to walk in our flesh, he did so that we might be exalted to share in his glory. That's a summary statement here in verse 10 of all the benefits which Jesus gained for us. That through Jesus, God is bringing many sons to glory. Now, all those benefits uh, boil down to a couple of things that are mentioned here. First of all, that he frees us. He frees us, sets us free. All around the world uh, these days, Christians are praying for a young pastor in Iran. His name is Yosef Nadarkhani. He's been being held captive and has been for a while now, having been condemned to death for becoming a Christian. But what this text teaches us, and what Pastor Nadarkhani also knows, is that Jesus has freed us from captors infinitely worse than the uh, Iranian uh, mullahs that... uh, hold his fate in their hands. According to verse 14, Jesus freed us from the devil. And according to verse 15, Jesus freed us from slavery to the fear of death. Now that raises the question, how do we get under Satan's tyranny wielded in the power of death? Well, we talked about this last week. Our first father, Adam, committed treason. That's how. He betrayed the whole human race. He sold us out. He defected to Satan, the enemy who was already in rebellion against God. And since Adam was the leader of the human race, he acted in our place. We all went down with him. When he sinned, we all became guilty. And our whole life gives evidence of the fact that that's true, for we continue to sin just like Adam did. So how did Jesus' death break the power of Satan's tyranny? Well, he paid the penalty for sin. He took the punishment for our guilt, both Adam's original sin and our continuing life of sin. Therefore, death and Satan could not hold Jesus in the grave. They had no power over him because the power of sin had been taken away. God's judgment had been satisfied. And so God raised Jesus from the dead. And when Jesus died and rose from the dead, just like Adam, he acted as our representative head in our place. Not to make us guilty like the first Adam did, but to make us righteous, right in God's eyes. And to deliver us out of Satan's dominion of darkness and bring us into the kingdom of God. Dear people, you must understand this. Here, Christianity is distinguished from all the other religions of the world. God's true salvation is not gained by what we can do to please God. 
We can do nothing to free ourselves. We are by nature slaves of sin. We are captives. Indeed, we have become willing participants serving under Satan's dominion. Our only hope is that someone takes radical action to rescue us. And that's exactly what God has done. He came to be born in human flesh. This Jesus lived in perfect obedience to the Father. He went to the cross and suffered judgment in our place, paying the debt that we owed. But God raised him from the dead, victorious over sin and death and Satan. And now he is busy freeing people from Satan's grasp, changing our hearts to turn away from sin and follow him, and giving us a new status as free citizens in the kingdom of of God. Oh, do not turn back to the deceitful ways of Satan. Hold fast to Jesus. He is our deliverer. He sets us free. But that's not all he frees us from. Verse 15 says he frees us from the fear of death, which also holds us in slavery. You see what has happened when Jesus paid for our sin and rose from the dead. He emptied death of its power. For death was a result of sin. So when sin is paid for, death is not so powerful anymore. Everything is changed for those connected to Jesus. Death's stinger has been removed, as the Apostle Paul says. It used to mean the end of life, the end of blessing, the coming of judgment, the punishment uh, with Satan. But for those who are in Jesus, his brothers and sisters, the death of our bodies is but the entrance into, into eternal life. Therefore, there's no reason to fear it. We don't seek to die. But we know death is not the end. It's not defeat. It's not, it's not the beginning of punishment. Death for the believer is only the coming of glory. Through Jesus, God brings us into his glory. I challenge you with this truth this morning. It's so easy to say, well, Jesus freed us from Satan's tyranny and from the fear of death. Do you really believe that? If we believe it, we cannot be willing to continue to live like slaves to sin. Intimidated by Satan's power in the world as if he had a hold on us. And if we really believe that in Christ we're set free, we must stop being so paranoid about dying. We need not cling to this life and the things of this life as if that's all, that's all there is. This morning I call you to believe what God declares concerning the work of his Son. In Jesus, God has gloriously set us free from Satan and from the fear of death. Oh, but that's not all. The second great benefit that Jesus won for us is that now he helps us. We see this in verse 16. Here we learn that not only is Jesus higher than all the angels, but we are better off than the angels. For Jesus is helping us along the way, bringing us into his glorious kingdom. Through Jesus, by him setting us free and by his continual help, God is bringing us to glory. Specifically, Jesus helps us by being our high priest. That's what verse 17 says. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful 
and faithful high priest. We don't have high priests anymore like they did back in the Old Testament. So it may not be obvious what it means that Jesus is a high priest. So let's think a bit about what an Old Testament high priest did. First of all, he made atonement for people's sin. The high priest was the only one who could do that. He's the only one who could enter the very presence of God and offer the atoning blood on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And Jesus has now done that. Not once a year, but once for all. Not offering the blood of an innocent animal, but offering his own blood. He made atonement for us. Second thing, the high priest acted as a mediator between God and man. He showed the people what God was like. And that's what Jesus has done, is it not? He came and lived in the midst of people, and he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He showed people, and he continues to do that. We have in his word, not just a book of empty facts, but he continues to show us the Father as his spirit takes the word and drives it home to our hearts and gives, gives us eyes to, and ears to see and hear it. And the third thing the high priest does is he intercedes for the people of God. And again, that's what Jesus does, only better. Every day, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father praying for us. Bringing our situation to the Father. Asking, defending, protecting those to whom he gave life. And how does he know what, he, what we need? He's been there. He suffered in a body just like we do. Sometimes we think Jesus doesn't really know what it's like because... Well, he never sinned, and my life is a mess because I've sinned so many times. Well, well, let's think about that a minute. Let me ask you this. Who really knows the strength of, of, of a destructive wind? You've seen reporters standing out as a hurricane's coming. Who really knows the, the power of a destructive wind? The one who stands out there until the wind gets to be 60 miles an hour and then runs for cover? Or the one who stands there until the wind tops out at 120 miles an hour and never gives an inch. Who really knows the strength of the wind? In a similar way, who knows the real power of temptation? The one who, 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 who uh, fades and, 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 and caves in after the third temptation? Or the fifth or the twentieth temptation? Or the one who endured everything sin had to throw at him and never caved in? Westcott wrote, sympathy with the sinner in his trial does not depend on the experience of sin, but on the experience of the strength of the temptation to sin, which only the sinless know in its full intensity. He who falls yields before the last strength. This morning I tell you, this is one of the most precious truths in the whole Bible. The heavenly, priestly ministry of Christ Jesus on our behalf. It's the guarantee that his grace is sufficient for whatever you encounter. We'll read about it later in Hebrews 4. We do not have a high priest, we read there. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin.
Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Through Jesus, our high priest, God is helping us in every way to bring us into his glory. Oh, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that God has made himself our servant boy to just give us whatever we desire. That's not true. He's God. We're not. The truth is God has an even grander agenda than that. It's his plan to make us holy, to conform us to himself. For this, God the Son became our brother. For this, he gave his life on the cross and then rose from the dead. To set us free from Satan and from the fear of death and judgment. And now as we suffer, as we live the life of pilgrims and strangers in a hostile world, which is exactly what Jesus lived, he promises his continual, sustaining grace, help, mercy in the time of need. God, through Jesus our brother, is bringing us into his eternal glory. Folks, that's God's great agenda for his people. And if that's the case, why are we so resistant? Why are we so hesitant to trust him? Why so fearful to obey him? Why so filled with complaining and self-pity? Lift up your heads, you saints of God. The one who called you is faithful. He will not abandon his own. He will complete what he has begun. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we desperately, desperately need you.